In the 1950s, there began the study of rational emotional behavior therapy. The gay lobby, uh, for lack of a better term, really, they took that paradigm shift as far as getting help for people who had, you know, they, they called homosexuality an emotional disorder. Uh, it was Dr. Uh, Albert Ellis and, and Dr. Robert Allen Harper, and they were leading researchers on all kinds of emotional behavior therapy, which included help for people with addictive personalities, infidelity, and homosexual behavior. They concluded that by admitting and accepting these lifestyles, that was the first step to working on emotional and cognitive ways to mentally and emotionally become healthy again. Uh, both men who, who, who sincerely wanted to help men and women who struggle with homosexual tendencies uh, and whose research was widely accepted were ostracized by gay activists uh, and, and threatened by the gay lobby. Are we seeing the result of an abandonment of rational emotional behavior therapies and other therapies that have gone way too far down the road to, to find help for people who are infiltrating people into this lifestyle, especially our kids? You know, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think the big danger is going in extreme in any way. So, yes, this was wonderful that um, that they developed this this idea have to accept it. And, and you know, in any addiction help, the first step is accepting that you have, that you have a, a problem that you want fixed. And so, yes, it is important to be able to, to accept that about yourself, but as anything, it can be taken to an extreme. And by often by accepting it, it's hard to know how much to condone it in the acceptance of it. And so it's, it's all about coming back to these critical thinking skills, which I think is what was at the root of all of this in the beginning was to rationally ask yourself, what emotions are truth and what are light. And we know our feelings, unfortunately, are liars. I can feel like someone doesn't like me. I can feel in eighth grade, like the girl sitting across from me hated me because of the way she looked at me when really she didn't even know I existed. She just had a face that just looked like she was angry. But in my mind and in my feelings, I could have been tortured by the fact that this girl didn't like me for years. Feelings are liars. Often our emotions can lie to us. Now, that doesn't mean to ignore your intuition completely in one other extreme. Instead, we have to constantly be critically thinking about things and asking ourselves, is this real? Is this truth? So yes, do I have these? Yes, I do. And that's the acceptance of them. But does that mean that if we have it, that that means that this is exactly the lifestyle that we need to live? Is this what we want? Is this what God wants for us? And it's coming back and it's finding that middle ground. Even Christ talks about it in the New Testament. We miss the mark. We go one way, the Pharisee went too far one way, and then others went too far the other way. And it's coming and finding where in the middle we can accept our humanity, we can accept our shortcomings. And instead of just Saying, well, that's it, I guess. Instead, we can say, let, let him work with us to make us holy within those shortcomings. Yeah, that's great. That's exactly what we need to do. Katie, another great topic uh, you tackle in the book is how to develop better conversation skills with teens. And this is huge. We had an incident over here I'm up at my daughter's a few days this week, and uh, their oldest came in last night and had just a horrible day was very upset, crying. And first thing she did was, you know, want to talk to us about it. Now that's pretty cool for a teen. 
Mm-hmm. And again, it goes back to that trust that you're talking about that, you know, you could have that secure base safe haven relationship with your child and into the teen years. So they will want to come to you when something happens. But, you know, talk a little bit about how to develop conversation skills with teens if you do have a pretty decent relationship. Right. Um I, I always tell parents to enter into their child's world. Uh, sometimes parents want to build relationships by doing things they like, not what's interesting to their kid. So what are some of the things that you address in this section about having a a, a better conversation with your teens? Yeah. So there's, so I'd like to address two things. So the first is if your teen is already a talker, some of the important things to know is the right kind of questions to ask, because you can spend a lot of time with a person and still walk away and feel like you don't know them very well. So within the book has a lot of conversation starters of things you should be asking. And sometimes it's just something like, tell me the best part of your day and the worst part of your day, because in that get to get into their mind, like you're saying, into their world. And you'll see what they value most and what things are hardest for them. And then from there, you can say, oh, why is why is lunch at school your hardest time? And then you might get into realizing that they maybe are struggling within their friend group or they feel uncomfortable or maybe they have a strange relationship with food. These are not things you would early learned if you hadn't approached the subject. So it's about asking probing questions. And that's how it is with all of our relationships. It's knowing what kind of questions to ask. And luckily within the book, I give a lot of direct prompts of things you should be asking your child. Now, if your child is not a talker, which is probably the main complaint I get is some kids talk your ear off, but there's some that just don't talk. Right. And if that's the case, my advice is to just be there. I mean, think about even how, you know, we're talking about the other side of the negative things. They slowly ease their way into making something normal, right? Where we don't want it to be normal, but it somehow creeped up on us. Think about that too, with your child. I I give an example in the book of a mother and a son who the son is not a talker and the mom would just take him everywhere with her. We need, she'd pick him up from school and say, Oh, I just need to run an errand to the mall. And you can, you know, we'll, we'll buy ice cream while we're there just to kind of bribe him to go along. And they would just sit in silence and she'd ask questions and you wouldn't respond, but she devoted so much time to just sharing space with this son who was a more introverted person anyways. But as they shared space, he became more comfortable with her. And eventually, as she would start to ask probing questions, it would became more natural for him to share. So if you have a child that's naturally introverted, it will backfire because like you're saying, Rita, there's not that safe place. You haven't entered their world. Their world is more quiet. Their world is more introspective. So if you get right in and ask them a very probing personal question, they'll likely shut down. So you'll have to start small and then, and, and just kind of weasel your way for a lack of a better word into <laughs> trust so that they feel like mom is here or dad is here and they're not leaving and they enjoy being around me and they actually want to hear what I have to say or what I feel. And then that will start to develop into something more wonderful. Katie, do you think um, for people listening that, I mean, I think it's great to read the love languages uh, and then there's love languages for teens and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a parent, you know, as you kind of grow with your kid, I mean, you kind of get a sense of what their love language is, don't you think? I mean, it's 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 probably not that difficult. It really isn't. I we had a really fun family activity we did a couple of years ago where we all sat and guessed each other's. Oh, and cool. for the 
we were about 80% right with each other's love languages, but there was some, one of my quieter children said that theirs was words of affirmation. And I wasn't a particular praiser of this child just because I thought they got embarrassed by gushing. But when they said that, I didn't realize that that was something that they were wanting, but felt a little silly asking for more gushing, maybe in public places or, or, you know, privately. And so I think you're, you could still be surprised by hearing maybe what they desire, what they're not getting because honestly, I'm, I feel love through touch, but I grew up in a home where my mom was not very comfortable with touch. Now I still have a fabulous rates with my mom. This is nothing negative, but I didn't even know touch was my love language until I reached adulthood and I had my own children and I desired to be touching them all the time. And so we might not even understand our love language. If we have words of affirmation as ours, but we have parents that are very withholding of their praise. We might not even know that that's a need that we're missing. Yeah, because truthfully, I mean, I, I'll never forget. And I wrote about this in my first book. I had a client once who sat in the chair and we were talking about needs. And uh, she just looked in the same thing, you know, what I need in, in terms of a love language. I didn't think it was OK to have needs. And I just shut that part of myself down. So, you know, I think that's a great little exercise you guys did. That's just a great idea because you just don't want to miss this. It's so important. Absolutely. And I think it can be really fun. And the thing that was most beneficial about doing it in our family is each person was so seen and heard. And it was it was this feeling that I really want to know how you feel loved. And, and it made, and it was funny because my husband afterward actually bought the disc personality test. And we did another activity of all of us doing that because he realized how much the kids loved being kind of spotlighted in our family and, and being told that we want to understand you. And it was just a really beneficial experience that I would recommend to anyone who feels like their family could benefit. Nice. So you have a chapter on being sick, tired, and overscheduled. And this is so important. You know, the parent, we're sick, tired, and overscheduled. The kid's overscheduled. And that probably resonates with everyone listening, uh, if they're a parent, uh, whether they're burned out. Uh, parents or overscheduled kids with sports and school and church or any other activities they're involved with. And so What's the solution for all of this? Are we teaching our kids to keep up this frenetic pace we all seem to be caught up in uh, in our culture today? And what are some of the signs parents can look for if their child is really struggling uh, physically or mentally to, to just, you know, keep up with all this? For sure. So there's a couple of things. So the first thing I think is, as we've been talking about, if you really know your child, you'll start to see those warning sites. If you have a child that's super talky, talkative and they, they want to always, you know, dump on you everything about their day and all of a sudden they become more quiet or they're very social. And now they're not going out with friends. Any change in behavior to any type of extreme is an indication that something's changing in them. And that could be a sign that they're having some sort of soul or mental health crisis. Maybe it's not a full crisis, but it is maybe on its way to that. And mm -hmm. so with recognizing it, it's really hard. I can't, um, if someone's in real serious crisis, I can see a stranger and say that person's in crisis. But unless I know a person very intimately, it is very hard for me to tell that they are having a hard time. So that's the first step is making sure that you have that intimacy with your child to recognize, Ooh, something's not right. Something is off. The second thing is, you know, you're saying this is such a balance of, 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 achievement, and then also of um, letting ourselves rest. And so another chapter in the book, we actually talk about um, 
learning goals versus achievement goals. And if a parent is really, and child are very obsessed with achievement goals, which is like a grade on a a test or a medal or a placement in a competition, then it does become exhausting. And you will see that the sick and overtired is going to be accelerated because they're going to be constantly chasing something that's not ever fully attainable. But if you are able to focus on the learning and the becoming goals, then it feels more flexible. And it also allows you to say part of my learning experience with this is to step back and take a break. And it gives you used to be able to say, Hey, you're not going to school today, even though you're obsessed about your grades, because I need you to take a mental health day. I need you to step back and say, why are we even going to school in the first place? What are we trying to accomplish? What's the end goal here? And if parents and child both can adopt this learning and becoming mentality, then it helps us to get a better idea because nobody is becoming better by running themselves to the ground and becoming sick and overscheduled and tired and angry. And it, it actually, it counteracts everything that you're trying to do for your, for your goals. And so it's really important that parents and kids step back and ask themselves, what is our, our motivation and what is pushing us towards excellence? Right. Yeah. And that's really goes hand in hand with, you know, kids feeling like they're only acceptable you know, if they're performing, right, all the sports and I got to be perfect in this and perfect in that. And and many of the kids I see, you know, they grow up to struggle with this idea of not being good enough because they believe they can't ever really please their parents. So how can parents maybe check in with their kids to unburden them from that? I mean, the most important thing is that children need to feel safe and have a voice. You know, they want to be heard and understood and known, not uh, have to check all these boxes of, uh, you know, perfectionism. Yeah, exactly. And I just think that with that, we just have to be so careful that we're just making sure that our kids know what we want for them and what we desire for them. And and parents, we unwittingly sometimes get caught up in the scores and, you know, by maybe giving a celebration to our child who got a 4 which is wonderful. And we want our kids to get good grades. But I know for us, Sometimes the more I praise that about a certain child, the more pressure she feels to perform in the future with that. And Mm -hmm. so it's stepping back and making sure that the conversations that I have with her and the praise that I am giving her is more focused on the things she can control. She can't control always the 4-0. She can work her hardest and still come out without a 4-0. So instead, what I should be praising is those things about her, like her work ethic and her kindness to others and the, the changes I've seen in her, the maturity, the growth, those sorts of things. If I'm complimenting on those, then she feels like I've already arrived irregardless of this outcome of my grades or my award or anything like that. So it is hard because it requires us as parents asking ourselves, what is true achievement? What do we really desire for our kids? If I said your child can be a 4-0 student or they can be nice, but they can't be both. I think most parents would say, I want a good, kind person, even over the grades. And so we need to adopt that mentality in everything and really encourage that in our children. Can can you explain the difference between learning goals and objectives and, and performance goals and objectives? For sure. So um, one of the examples I often give is about like a debate competition. So your child is competing in a debate competition. And if it were achievement or a performance-based goal, their goal would be, I want to place in the top five, or I just want to beat this person. And that's the achievement goal because 
because it's dependent on a score. It's dependent on someone else's um, opinion of them. If it's a learning goal, then it would be, I would just like to get through the speech without messing up on my memorization, or I want to get through the speech with more emotion and, and, you know, more, more better body language, something that they actually can control. Then the learning goal is irregardless of any outcome. So they can walk away and say, Hey, I didn't mess up on my speech once and come out last place. Or they can come out and say, I didn't mess up on my speech once and come out first place. But either way you controlled what actually defines success for them, where you cannot control the others. And so we do this with grades. We do it with sports. We do it even in our family relationships. And unfortunately, us as parents even do it in our own parenting. We compare how good we are as parents based on our child's behavior, on their achievements. So we might look at a mom whose kid's an Olympic athlete and say, wow, she was a really good mom. And the one who has a child who still lives at home for mental health crises and say she must not have been a very good mom, which is absolutely and completely false because those are achievement goals that even the mom couldn't have controlled. But real in reality, what is the most important thing? And it's the becoming. And who knows that that child who's dealing with a mental health crisis may be a phenomenal person and be contributing to society in wonderful ways. And the Olympian, who knows? So it's just so important that we pull back and ask ourselves, what is the definition of success? And when we define it, even for our child over and over again, I just want you to become better. I want you to become, you know, more competent in math. I don't care about the grades. I just want you to feel like you're comfortable there. Then that tells them that their success is not defined by someone else giving them a score. Being a child actor, uh, there was some so many good things about being in show business, you know, as far as uh, learning a skill and working with adults sometimes. But there was also, uh, there was hard to ba balance the, uh, perf the performance goals and also the skill goals goals, the learning goals. For sure. And, and that's why I say it was such a good experience. And I look back and it's funny because I asked myself, would I ever want my child to be put in that situation? And I'm, I think, no, no. But I look back and think so much of what I became was because of it. And I, I think that's such, and it's something I address at the end of my book is to remember that these hard things that we learned that are challenging, even, even having a goal of that's performance goal based and then learning through failure, that, that maybe wasn't the right way is what makes us better people in the long run. And I think as parents, we often try to protect our children from hard experiences because we hate the idea of their suffering. We are so pain averse that in the process, we, we stop them from getting those experiences that they need to become who they're supposed to become. And I even think about back to our relationship with God, he allows us to experience hard things because that helps us become more compassionate, more empathetic, closer to him. It strengthens our faith. And so as we parent our children and as we see them go through these hard things, and as we as parents make mistakes that we worry are going to harm our children in the future, we can all know that this can give us experience and it can also make us better people in the long run if we are constantly admitting when we're wrong, turning towards God, and then also turning back towards each other and saying we will prioritize our family relationships over everything else. And when we do that, it just creates this unbreakable bond within our family and an unbreakable bond with God that will sustain us through all of these hard things that we cannot control. Well, that's all the time we have for this program. Katie Millar-Wierig, how do 
listeners get the book and and uh, and in touch with with all that you're doing. Yes, awesome. So you can find me on Instagram at the Balanced Mind Project, and there there'll be links to my websites. I also have a teenage anxiety home program that can be done with in family settings, um, and then my book Becoming a Mean Teen Parenting Machine is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for being our guest. This was a great conversation. You're doing some incredible work. Um, so, so love the book. Oh, thank you. This book. <laughs> thank you so much, Rita and Richard. It was so great talking to you. It was great t- talking to you as well. Thank you again. And hope, hopefully we'll have you back pretty soon. Uh, what's, what's the next book? The next book is actually Teenage Anxiety. <laughs> oh, wow. Awesome. A lot of that going on. Yes, yes. So, well, thank you so much. Yes, please stay in touch. I would love it. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. That was Katie Millar Wirig in a special edition of Mind Matters Counseling Culture. For more, go to RitaSchulte.com. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-E. And of course, the dot com uh, for renewable resources that matter to your life. I'm Richard Beatty. Looking forward when you join us next time on Mind Matters. Deception, denial. We hear it, we think it, and we find ourselves in a toxic pool of negative thinking. Everybody out of the pool. Deceptive thoughts take root in the mind, and you've got to change the physical nature of where the brain goes and redirect your thoughts to good. How? By noticing, paying attention. It all starts in your mind. You can buy index cards and write down positive thoughts. Focus on what is good, beautiful, and worthy, and think on these things, not on those things. The brain has a system of checks and balances and reorganizes on what you think. When you name the deceptive thought, you can eliminate it by replacing it in your card file by a better thought. So if I think that I'm not good enough or smart enough to be in the job I'm in, then think of a time you creatively contributed to someone's life. Write it down. That integrates right and left brain. Think of a time you creatively contributed to someone's life. And each time you think that you're not worthy, write down the truth about why you were born for such a time as this. Think this. Not that. A renewable resource from Mind Matters. Go to RitaSchulte.com.